This is an Enlightenment Day celebration talk by Joel, titled, Truth Cannot Be Denied, recorded August 8, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today is the day we celebrate Enlightenment. We call it Enlightenment Day. And we choose this day, this Sunday, because it's close to August 13th. And August 13th was the date of my enlightenment. But we are not really celebrating my enlightenment. We just have to pick some day. And I happen to be the spiritual director of this center, so this is a convenient day for us. And there are two reasons we're not really celebrating my enlightenment. One is, there is no such thing as my enlightenment. There's really only one enlightenment. And by definition, you could say, enlightenment is the discovery that there is no one to be enlightened. By the same token, there's no one to be in bondage either. So that's the good news part of it. And it's also the case that in a certain sense, we are all already enlightened. So the, the only difference perhaps between you and me is you don't know it yet, and I do. But we all have this potential. We have this potential because enlightenment is simply discovering the truth of who we truly are. Who we are now. I mean, you don't have to do anything to attain this. It's not something that you get through accumulation. And in fact, as we're going to see, it's something that you discover through stripping away delusions, the delusion that you aren't enlightened or the delusion that you are someone who is not enlightened. Let's put it that way. So really what we're celebrating here is this potential that is in every human being to wake up to their true nature. So. Having said that, then the question is, what is this truth of who we really are? And I thought we'd investigate this a little bit this morning, and I thought we'd take an approach by revisiting a teaching that Dr. Wolf, who was one of my teachers, gave to Tom McFarlane here under some unusual circumstances, as you will discover in a moment. And I've touched on this uh, quite often and even fairly recently, but I have no tape that really delves into the whole thing, and I think it's really worth it. So let me first introduce you to Tom McFarlane. He's just going to tell you very briefly what the teaching was and the circumstances under which he got them. Go ahead. So about 13 years ago, uh, in the middle of the night, in dreamless sleep, there was suddenly lucidity, which basically means that there were no contents in consciousness, and my body was still completely asleep. And out of this came a sense of profound presence, and a question arose, what is truth? And this booming voice responded, that which cannot be denied. And then my body woke up, and I was in kind of a shock, or I think I had a cold sweat or something. And I realized that it was unmistakably the voice of Dr. Wolf, as I had heard him on... Uh, numerous tapes I'd listened to. I had never met him in the flesh. Uh, he died before I had the opportunity to meet him. But uh, I feel like I, I met him then, for sure, and I got a teaching. So this is very interesting, the way this teaching came about, because it's a wonderful example of what we talk about 
an inner teacher or an archetypal guide that can appear to you in dreams or even in dreamless sleep. And in this case, and in most cases, the guide will dress itself in a form that you are familiar with, that you revere and respect, as Tom revered and respect Dr. Wolf. And so uh, if a guide wants to appear to Tom, that's a nice choice. If you are a Hindu, the archetypal guide might appear to you as Krishna, for instance. If you're a Christian, it might be Jesus. So it depends on your culture and your background how these figures appear. But this is what uh, Jung described as how these archetypes work. We can recognize the function they play, and there's something that is beyond the personal in that. It's not like your own imagination thinking up this. And here's a delivering of a very straightforward teaching. A teaching, by the way, that is totally consistent with everything Dr. Wolf ever wrote or taught, but I don't know of that teaching appearing in any of his particular works. So we could explore this this morning. What does this mean about an archetypal guide appearing to you and whatever? But we're not going to explore that this morning. Uh, we're going to focus on the teaching itself because truly speaking, that is what's most important about this. And actually, when these uh, kind of unusual manifestations happen, there's a danger. You get fascinated by the manifestation. You start to think, gee, is Dr. Wolf communicating from the on the grave and this and that and so forth. Uh, by the way, he had some experience with mediums. His own wife was a medium, and he trusted some of the, uh, the advice he got through them, but he also had a, a healthy skepticism. So when he died, he left a password, a secret password with his family. In case anybody wanted to channel him or claim they were channeling him, then you could ask the password, and if they didn't know it, it was bogus. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Dr. Wolf was very uh, rational, very logical. He was very much a Janani, which means he took the path of inquiry, the path of using the intellect, and the path of philosophy, mystical philosophy. So anyway, this teaching is a very succinct and very pertinent teaching. The truth is that which cannot be be denied. Now, there are a few things we have to say about this before we go too much farther. First of all, the truth here is not the truth of a statement about reality or a theory or a concept or an idea. And in our culture, we have this tendency to emphasize the truth of an idea or a concept or a theory, particularly when it comes to science. We want to know, is a particular scientific theory true? And the way we do that is we verify it against experience. And then we say, oh, yes, it is true. Uh, it is true that light bends with the curvature of space because you can go out and you can measure a star that should be hidden by another star and you can see it and so forth. So you verify that. So we say the theory is true. Now, there is a relation between theory and experience. But when mystics talk about truth, they're not talking about the idea or the concept or what we would call in that context a teaching being true, so much as the teaching pointing to a truth that is already embedded in our naked experience prior to ideas and theories and concepts about the experience arising. So a mystic would say, actually, all teachings fall short of the truth. They fall short of the truth because all they're trying to do is to get you to look back at your experience. So this is a slightly different meaning of truth than we are used to using it in our culture. 
It is the truth of actually what we are experiencing. And so mystics are aiming at a verification of the truth, and this is why we call the Center the Center for Sacred Sciences, because mystics always say, don't just take our word for it, you have to verify the truth for yourself. But that verification is not going out and running some experiments and seeing, oh, the teaching is true. That verification comes from a direct, non-conceptual realization, enlightenment, gnosis of this truth of your experience. <coughs> An immediate recognition, oh, this is what my experience really is. So, this is why in all mystical traditions you will find this emphasis on getting beyond thought. It's not that we throw thought out, it's not that we don't use our intellects or have teachings and all that, but ultimately we need to get beyond thought, or better to say before thought, to that level of experience before thought has come and commented on it. So here's what the ancient Hindu Upanishads say of Brahman. Brahman is their word for ultimate reality. He comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. And Rumi, a great Sufi in the Sufis of the mystics of Islam, explains a little why. He says, that oneness is on the other side of descriptions and states. Nothing but duality enters speech's playing field. In point of fact, this ultimate reality, this truth that is realized, is a non-dual experience. Or it, let me put it this way. It is the true non-duality of all our experience, not just one experience. So when we talk, just by virtue of using a word, just by naming something, we create duality. So if I have often said, I name this book, I just do the most primitive kind of a speech we can do, give things names. And you notice in the Bible, you know, Adam goes around naming things. And that, in a certain sense, is how everything comes to be here. I name this book, and I put an imaginary boundary around it and set up a distinction between book and everything that is not book. So I've already created a duality. I don't even have to name something else. Now I have book, and I have everything that is not book. And all of our speech proceeds this way. We start naming everything. We end up with more than duality. We end up with incredible multiplicity. So this is why Rumi is saying, you see, nothing but duality enters speech's playing field. How can it express this oneness that is beyond description? This is why the uh, Christian mystic, St. John of the Cross, says, Accordingly, to reach union with the wisdom of God, a person must advance by unknowing rather than knowing. So, in other words, what we are going to uh, do here is come to a place where we know actually less and less until we finally know nothing at all, which is almost an exact quote from Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, which is a fundamental work in Taoism. It says the same thing. If you're pursuing worldly things, you know more and more every day. If you're pursuing the way, the way of Tao, you're learning less and less until finally you know nothing at all. But know nothing at all here means that all the things we thought were true we find out aren't ultimately true. It's not that thought isn't useful and very valuable and all that, but somehow we've been deceived by thought. So, 
One way to get to this unknowing is to proceed by a kind of deconstructionism. We take what we assume to be true or believe to be true and we look at it, we question it. Is it really true? How do we know it's true? And we don't settle for, well, it works, or it's good enough. For all practical purposes, it's true. Now we keep pushing, we keep pushing. Is it ultimately true? Can I be ultimately certain that it's true? And that way we start to see, oh, what we assume to be true maybe isn't true. So we can just put it aside. We don't throw it out. We use it when it's necessary, but we don't rely on it to tell us what our nature is and what the nature of reality is, our experience. Now, uh, postmodern philosophers love to play this game of deconstruction. And there's lots of now modern literature on deconstruction. All these postmodern philosophers running around deconstructing everybody else, deconstructing themselves, uh, deconstructing the past, the future, and so forth. And it's actually very valuable. If you have a Janana mind, if you have a philosophic mind, I recommend them highly because they'll lead you on these, uh, down these paths of destroying whatever you think you know and raising all these questions. But that's as far as they go. They still have this idea that truth is in the statement. So if they deconstruct all these statements about reality, then they end up in a position where they realize you can't be certain about anything, including that statement that you can't be certain about anything, which ends in a paradox, which is similar to why some mystical teachings end in a paradox. But this is the other thing about mystical truth that is different from worldly truths. And that is mystics claim that this truth comes with or carries absolute certainty. This is why Dr. Wolf said, truth is that which cannot be denied, cannot be doubted, of which you are absolutely certain. Now, that's a, a radical claim already, especially in this day and age, but it's more radical even than you can imagine. Because what he's saying is not that this truth is something that you don't doubt. So, for instance, let's say you're a believing Muslim or Christian or Jew, and you believe in God, and you may be absolutely convinced there's a God, but it's possible to doubt there's a God, isn't it? Maybe not for you, but somebody else can come along and say, well, I don't, I don't believe in God. No, but Dr. Wolf's saying this is a truth that cannot be denied. If you're a scientist, you may be really, really convinced that the earth is round. But, you know, there are people around who still believe the earth is flat. There's a, an organization called the Flat Earth Society. It's possible to deny that the earth is round. You may be a mathematician, and you can prove Pythagorean's theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared incontrovertibly. But I can come along and say, well, you know, this proof rests on certain axioms. Are they really true? In fact, uh, what happens to the Pythagorean theorem in Riemann space? Is it, it doesn't hold, does it? Well, that's a good example. If you question some of the axioms, particularly the axiom, I believe it's the one with uh, two parallel lines never meet, and you assume that they do meet, you come up with a whole different geometry, and the Pythagorean theorem does not hold there. So it is possible to question these things. That's what I'm driving at. 
But Dr. Wolf is saying the truth he's talking about, the truth the mystics are talking about, is that which cannot be denied. Are we all following this now? Okay. So I thought it'd be fun this morning, and perhaps instructive, to try to examine this and to see what this could possibly mean, and also to start with what you are already absolutely certain of. And I hope to, by playing Socrates a little bit here, convince you that there are some things you are absolutely certain of, and that they might make a good jumping-off point for this investigation and this inquiry. And in fact, uh, if this works for some of you, you will save perhaps years of uh, going around deconstructing all these philosophies because you'll have a sort of a solid ground to begin with. And then you just have to burrow deeper from there. That's the hard part here. But at least we can get down to some kind of seeming bedrock. So let me begin by asking you, is there anything you are certain of now? Absolutely certain, yes. I am not you. Oh, really? <laughs> Supposing we are in a dream. Now, when you're in a dream, do you see other characters? Yeah. And when you wake up, aren't they all you? Yeah. yeah. Well, we might be in a dream right now, so I might be you. There are, there are other reasons I might be you, too, but that, just at that level. I can doubt it, you see. This is my point. All right. Yo, you got one. There is consciousness. Are you psychic or something? <laughs> I was going to say, okay. How many of you are conscious right now? <laughs> this isn't a trick question. I'm just using language. <laughs> no, I'm just using language norm. No, we're going to get tricky later. But how many of you are conscious? Okay. Is anybody here not conscious? <laughs> Look around. Is anybody here not conscious? Are you certain you are conscious? Just aware. Are you certain? Could I convince you in any way that you are not? By any form of logic? No. I couldn't convince you you're unconscious, correct? No. I could convince you? Sure. How? What, what argument would I... What? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes, we need to have some primitive primal terms here. And I'm not being fancy. You can substitute awareness. Are you aware? Yes. Are you aware of my voice? Yes. Yeah. Does that imply total awareness? No, I just, just, are you aware? Are you conscious or are you unconscious? Everybody who's unconscious, please raise your hand. No one's unconscious. Okay. Yeah. There's another way of attacking it just because you're asking the I and the you and you need to also say what you mean by the I and the you. Yes, yes, yes. It is. She's been around a long time. We're going to get to that, Therese. i got to lead them, see. You know, Socrates doesn't give it all away in the first paragraph. That's why his books, you know, like are 800 pages long. I mean, But no, we're going to make progress here. But I mean, this is really, really certain, right? Nobody can deny this. I can deny that you are conscious, but it's impossible for you to deny you're conscious. You see I'm driving out here? Now, if I think about it, and somebody said, well, it depends on what you mean by awareness or conscious. 
If I start thinking about consciousness, if I start forming ideas, theories, concepts, oh, and now I can deny them, right? I might say, well, you know what? Consciousness is uh, some sort of spirit that's locked in this body. <clears throat> you know, that was the primary theory for hundreds of years about what consciousness was. That's not a bad theory, but I can deny it. I mean, it's not beyond doubt. Today, uh, science says, well, consciousness is produced by uh, processes in the physical brain. Well, nobody's ever explained exactly how that happens, so it's certainly possible to deny that. So once I start thinking about this stuff, I get in trouble. I start getting less certain. But the naked experience, I can't doubt. Now, is something, and we're using that term very loosely, is something appearing in this consciousness right now? Anybody have any doubts about that? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm not so sure I could say that something is appearing in it. Okay. You know, How would you it like could to put be it? that it is it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is smart. Okay. So I guess. Is something I, appearing? I, let's, yeah, that's, let's stop with my that. My basic thing is like something's going on. Okay, good. Well put. That's all. No, I see. I, this, I warned you in the beginning here. We're not, we're not trying to formulate the precise theory here. I'm trying to use words to lead you to experience. The experience, something is going on, huh? I mean, it isn't just a big black vacuum, right? Is everybody absolutely certain that something is going on? <laughs> something is appearing? Yes. What that is, see, we start thinking about it, then, uh-oh, we can start doubting. Like, are we dreaming? Or is this waking experience? And we could go investigate that. How do I know that this is really waking experience? And we could say, well, it seems more vivid than dreams are. But I've had dreams that are more vivid than this, I'll tell you. And if we look into it, and this is, we're not going to get into this this morning, but you can go look into it, you can investigate, it, and it's well worth doing. But it is certainly possible to doubt that we are all awake. Maybe we are all asleep. We're all having exactly the same dream. Or maybe none of us are here except you, 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 or whatever reference frame there is, and this is all your dream. But that something is appearing cannot be denied. Right? Anything else? Can you think of anything else that cannot be denied? That is absolutely certain. I was born. Oh, how do you know you were born? You were told you were born. You don't even remember being born. You could be from, uh, you know, Venus, and you were hatched, and, and they, yeah, and they brought you here in a spaceship, and you know, I mean, did you ever see the invasion of the body snatchers? <laughs> That's an easy one. Yeah. I'm alive. Ah. What does that mean? That's a good one. We have to define what that means. If it means you're aware or there is awareness, then certainly true. But what does it mean you're alive? Well, this body is alive. The heart is beating. I'm breathing. Well, now you're making all sorts of assumptions about what is going on here, about this, what is appearing, that this something. First of all, you're assuming that there is a body, right? This body you're experiencing, see, may not be you. Maybe you are dreaming. Maybe you are dreaming you are in this, a woman's body, and when you wake up in five minutes, you'll find you're in a man's body. Has anybody ever dreamed they're in the body of an, the opposite sex? Yeah. Has yeah. anybody ever dreamed they were in the body of an animal? 
Maybe you're a bear dreaming you're a human. No, this is this is important. It's a good premise to work on that you're alive and walk around in a body. I mean, it works in you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the cases, but we cannot be absolutely certain about it. Yeah. In the state of unknowing, there is neither consciousness nor unconsciousness, nor something, nor cannot, nor deny. Are you in that state now? Where is me? Is there something appearing now? Nothing is appearing. Nothing is appearing. No. And my voice isn't appearing? I mean, in the state of unknowing... Oh, no, no, we're not talking about state of unknowing. We're talking about right now. Right now. Right now, I'm you. Right now. Something's appearing, right? There's awareness and something's appearing? If you prefer to call it something, it is there. A somewhat. Before something, there is this awareness. No, wait, wait, you're getting too fancy. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. That's all I'm trying to <laughs> Something's apparent. Something's apparent. Yeah. There is a knower perceiving the awareness. How do you know that's true? See, that's what Descartes said. I think, therefore I am. Well, I don't know. I can doubt that. Maybe there is no knower knowing this. Uh, There's something we can go investigate, but that's not absolutely certain right off the top of the head. Yeah. Well, if there appears to be something going on, then there must be something aware that there appears to be something going on. Okay, hold that one. We're going to get that one next. I just want to know, I can't think of anything else that you can be absolutely certain of, except that there is consciousness and something's appearing. Right? But we can be absolutely certain about that. Is that is that true? Now look where we are, see? All these postmodern philosophers say you can't be certain about anything, but we can be certain about something. And you can be, and you're not even a philosopher. Thank God for you and for me. <laughs> I mean, this isn't, you know, you don't have to be uh, a PhD with a, uh, a degree from Harvard philosophy department. We can be certain about this. But now let's go further and let's uh, ask some questions about how we have posed these questions. You just asked. What did you say just now? Somebody said about awareness? Yeah. Uh, Well, if there appears to be something that's going on, there must be something which is aware that there appears to be something that's going on. Uh Okay. Now, this is more difficult because we're going to start losing the exact meaning of our words here. But we still want to try to point to an experience, an experience that's happening right now that you don't need any special spiritual qualifications to see or anything. Is there really a difference between the appearances in awareness or consciousness, or we could call it the forms appearing, whatever term, I'm not stuck on terms here, and the awareness or consciousness in which they are appearing? In other words, we can approach this by asking it several other ways. Did we ever experience anything outside of awareness or consciousness? Has anybody ever experienced anything outside of awareness and consciousness? <laughs> Nobody? Yes, you have. So do, doesn't there have to be an awareness outside of form to perceive the form? Well, that's an interesting thought, but <laughs> we are now trying to see if there's any actually difference between the form and the awareness. So here's one example, and 
maybe we can see it this way. Let's talk in terms of a materialist idea of space and stuff. This gong is appearing in space. It stands in space, correct? Is that true? Now, if it wasn't for space, this gong couldn't be here. It is inseparable from space. Get that? Can you think of for a minute? What what would it mean to have a gong without space? Wherever this gong goes, it is inseparable from space. It is possible to have space without a gong, but it's not possible to have a gong without space. Is everybody following this? In a certain sense, we, we think of them as quite different. There's empty space and there's a solid gong. But that's really, as Rumi said, duality in our speech field. In truth, we can't pull the space apart from the gong. We can't pull the nothingness apart from the somethingness, can we? In our minds, it's separate, but I never have an experience of a gong without the experience of space. They go together, always, completely. Yeah. Are you not saying that it's we who make the separations? Yes. Okay. Is this in, in, in our, uh, how we describe it? Well, the version has to be there. In, in, in the way that it is, it's a different thing. But in the way that we describe it is where we have to... That's exactly right. And I said, this is harder because I have to use words now. We're starting to go beyond where words can go. We don't have a word for, you know, space object. That is one word that signifies that unity. We don't have a word for nothing something that signifies that unity. You see what I mean? And in fact, if we start using words that way, over oh, then we start getting paradoxical statements. Another way, and a very common way of describing this within the mystical traditions themselves, and it's cross-tradition, is that it's like an ocean with waves. So our language breaks up the idea of ocean from waves. But we have never have experience of any waves. I'm just talking about water waves here now, or ocean waves, without ocean. And there is no real division. We can't take the wave, you know, and uh, remove it. Sometimes the ocean is completely flat, and there are no waves. That's true. But when waves arise, they're just simply forms of water, of the ocean. They're not something separate. Now, if we really start to look at our experience, this experience of a something appearing in this awareness and the awareness, we might start to directly see, oh, gee, maybe there is no difference between the forms appearing in the awareness and the awareness itself. So we're trying to deconstruct now these very primitive distinctions on language has, that we've just assumed to be true. So maybe what I'm saying is first we thought there were two things we were absolutely certain of. One was that we were aware, or there's awareness, there's consciousness, and the other is something's appearing. But maybe that's not being certain of two things, maybe that's only being certain of one thing. Consciousness and its forms. I try to run it all together to describe that one thing. You see what I'm driving at here? So if that's true, you see, instead of now, taking what we're certain of and constructing an idea or a philosophy on it, we're going the opposite direction here. We're trying to dive into what we're already certain of and deconstruct the distinctions that are even in that. 
right? Now, let me ask another question. We're getting more difficult because the language gets more difficult and also the assumptions get more firmly rooted here. But here's another one. And some of these you have to go off and investigate on your own. And this is one that most seekers have to do a lot of sustained, prolonged inquiry to arrive at the kind of certainty about that Dr. Wolf was talking about. But let me raise this question for you. Have you ever been unconscious? I know you're not now. I mean, nobody raised their hand. But have you ever been unconscious? Yes. You have? Yes. What was it like? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> have you ever been conscious of being unconscious? No, I have not. No. So that has never been your direct experience that you've been unconscious? No, not really. No. Somebody I, I, told I you. Told, I was told about my... That's right. So it could be doubted. It is possible. Sure. Yeah. Well, I can remember when I was not conscious when I was a very small child. You can. What was it like? Well, you're going to laugh, right? No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I don't, maybe. I can't promise. I've heard it yet. <laughs> I'll try not to. I'll laugh, too. Okay. Well, I, I felt merged with the whole world. What we're trying to get to again. But so there was consciousness. There was consciousness. No, I wasn't conscious of being an individual self. Or but I didn't ask that. I said, okay. "All right, never mind. Sorry." But you're aware. Are you aware of being merged with the whole world? No, I was only became aware of it when I wasn't anymore. Oh. Oh, was there an awareness of being merged with the whole world? I don't know. This is why this takes prolonged inquiry for usually for most people to see this because. Right now, you take a snapshot. You know you're absolutely certain you're aware there's consciousness. But what about tomorrow? What about uh, the next hour? What about the next minute? But if you continue to observe ongoing, and you ask yourself, am I ever losing consciousness? And a very good place to observe this is as you're falling asleep and as you're waking up in the morning, because that's where we normally think we lose consciousness. What is really your experience? And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to go make the inquiry. Isn't it, though, that all this somewhat, or whatever we're going to call it, appearances, forms, they go out of consciousness? And then maybe some other kinds of forms, we normally call dreams, come into consciousness. And then they go out. And then there are spaces in between where there is nothing appearing in consciousness. But is it really unconscious? This happens several times, and then what we call this waking world arises back in consciousness. See if you ever experience actually going unconscious. If you want to pursue this from a more philosophical point of view, as we started to do a few Sundays ago, you can ask the question about time. Is consciousness in time, or does time appear in consciousness? Maybe for consciousness there is no time. Maybe time is a construction that we create out of thoughts, all of which appear in consciousness. The idea is to get a, a sense, and you can become quite certain of this, that there is never an experience of being unconscious or unconsciousness, and that time itself is part of all the somewhat that arises in consciousness. That consciousness itself is beyond time. Yes, Dean. Um, when you were speaking um, 
an object and is it separate from space? It reminds me, of course, of space-time continuum, which is that the total one is out of which everything arises and returns to. But it is a space-time continuum, which implies that time is of the very essence of what of form itself, and not therefore a construct, because obviously experiments have been done that shows that there's an interrelationship between the movement of time and speed, for instance. That's Einstein's theory. Right. The and theory du jour. It's not a theory. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I have a book. You should check it out by Barber, very respected physicist, not some wacko, who shows that you don't need time at all to do physics. Well, it's a constructive you don't need time to do physics, but like in satellite tests and so on, it's shown the faster you go, the slower time goes. So that if that be true, is something outside of the observer. No, but if Barbara's right, there is no such thing as time. Well, he'd have to talk to the physicist. He is. Like no, no, he is a physicist. And, you know, it, it's, it's certainly not the accepted theory, but it is a theory on the table. It's just as much of a scientific theory as Einstein's. And, you know, before Einstein, time and space were not considered a continuum. Einstein comes along, now they're considered a continuum. A hundred years from now, who knows what's going to be the case. So, from a point of view of scientific theories, they always change. There's no such thing as a scientific theory that's proven for all time. And any scientist will tell you that. There always can be doubted. In fact, by one standard, if it can't be falsified, it's not a scientific theory. At the same time, you can't set aside experiments that have validated premises. Oh, certainly you can. There were experiments that validated phlogiston. Yes, I can. Oh, it happens all the time in science. No, really, don't be naive. And this isn't about science. This is about our immediate direct experience. When we go investigate, what is time? I don't know if you hear that Sunday. You can check out my tape if you're interested. It might start you off in this. But this is the kinds of questions we have to ask ourselves. If we're going to proceed with a mystical inquiry, if we are going to deconstruct not just the theories, but deconstruct the distinctions which dictate our experience when we just simply take them for granted as being true. Yes? You talk about being certain and our experience and all of that. Something is certain. Something is saying I'm certain. I'm sorry, I'm not following. Well, you're not talking about the person who's saying I'm sure about it. Oh, very good. Now we're just about to get to it. Do you want to go there now? Well, that's my question. Good. So now we're certain about one thing. First, we thought we were certain about two things. We're certain about one thing, and that is that there is this, we're just going to call it the ocean wave. The ocean wave of awareness and forms or appearances in awareness that actually aren't in awareness. They are forms of awareness. And we've raised the question, is this actually all happening in time, or is time part of the forms and appearances that are happening in the ocean of awareness? We've got to put that one aside for a moment. That's a critical one because, of course, if time is only a construct within that, then there's no such thing as death. So you can see the vital importance of certainty about that. But now we're going to ask the most vital question of all. Because I, and somebody, several of you called me on this. Therese did. She always picks these things up. I asked you in the very beginning, are you conscious? And I say, well, who is not conscious? Who is unconscious? And all the way through here, except when somebody's caught me on that one, 
We've been talking as though there were someone who was conscious, could be conscious, could be unconscious. Now, this is the key question in all mystical traditions. Who are you, really? Who is it that is aware? And see, he's driving at things here, but he was way ahead of us. He didn't want to go through the, the normal procedure. Who? <laughs> now, if all there is is one thing, ocean consciousness form waves... And that is all we've ever experienced, and we've already that's already certain for us, right? Then whatever this thing can't be outside that. Or we might think it's outside that, but that's just a thought arising within the appearances arising within awareness. Remember, thoughts are included in all this something that's arising. If that's all there is, there's never been an experience of something outside that. So then the question is. What thing or collection of things, of forms of consciousness, are you? Yeah. Um, If we're like a computer and we create our experience of ourselves as a certain way, and trees as a certain thing, we set up these boundaries... Is it possible that physiologically, mechanically, whatever, that this computer has consciousness? And with consciousness, the thing we create does all the creating. Computer dies, then this particular consciousness or awareness dies with it. Okay, now, there's only one thing about all that that I have any certainty about. I don't know that they're computers. I don't know there's anything called physiology. Any of that I can, I'm not certain about. All I can be certain about is you're telling me about this, and the only thing you can be certain about is these thoughts are arising in awareness. That you can be certain about. True. But what the status of the thoughts are, whether that's real, that, that, you see, this, this is my whole point here. That's what takes us off into theory. That's what takes us in the other direction. I'm not saying it's bad to go there. Let's just know what we're doing. That's if you want to be a scientist, you want to be a philosopher, you want to construct a worldview or whatever. You see what I mean? But that's not where mystics go. We're going the opposite direction. We're trying to dig deeper, deeper into the foundation. We're getting simpler, you notice. We're knowing less and less. We started knowing two things, and we end up only knowing one thing, and now we're even questioning something about that one thing that we've sort of taken for granted. We haven't even raised the question yet. Is there a... I that is conscious and observing all this. And if there is, this I must be a something or a set of somethings arising in this consciousness. So which set could it be? And this then is where a lot of mystical inquiry begins, particularly in the Hindu tradition. They have a whole uh, systemized way of inquiring. It's called neti neti. And they follow the way they break up what they think most people think they are, which is a body, it's vital energy, it's emotions, it's thoughts, uh, it's bliss. And then they call this the coverings of the truth of who you are. And the idea is you investigate and you peel away the coverings. You realize, no, you are not the body. You are not your thoughts. You are not this. You are not that. So it's called neti neti, not this, not that. 
And it's very simple. You don't have to learn the whole Hindu system, and you certainly don't have to adopt the whole Hindu psychology and physiology about what constitutes a human being, which is slightly different from ours and different from Native Americans. And it's kind of interesting that we assume everybody, of course, knows what a human being is, but different cultures have very different ideas and experiences of being a human being. But whatever you think you are, whatever thing or sets of things arising in this awareness, this consciousness, just observe. And I think you will find that they are all impermanent. That no thought sticks around. Thoughts come, they go, they come, they go, they come, they go. But you are not coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. Emotions come and go, come and go. One day you're happy, next day you're not so happy, next day you're angry. You watch this in a sustained way, prolonged way. You keep watching. Sometimes you watch very carefully. Sometimes you just have a general sense of this. You keep this mindfulness going day and night. This is if you want to do this inquiry, if you want to arrive at this certainty. And you will see that everything you think you are is impermanent. That whatever you thought you were today is all gone by tomorrow. Down to your body, and this is hard for Westerners, we have such a concrete notion of bodies. You watch carefully what you call your body. What's it made up of? Sensations. They're constantly coming and going. Sounds gurgling in the stomach, you know, coming and going, sneezings, right? Uh, smells, uh, you know, uh, coming and going. Taste what's in your mouth. Uh, whatever it is, our minds take all the set of this impermanent fluctuating phenomena and we draw a nice little boundary around it, just like gong, and we call it body. It's very convenient. But when we look into it, there's nothing really there. Nothing substantial there. Nothing permanent there. And we keep looking more and more closely, looking more and more closely. And finally, what we can become absolutely certain of as that there is only this awareness and these waves of uh, whatever, and that's it. No I. Then we don't know who we are. Then we have entered this unknowing that we were trying to get to to begin with. You see what I mean? Yes. Are you separating the body, which is impermanent, from consciousness or awareness, which is permanent? Well, this is a good question to see. You keep watching. You watch what's impermanent and what is permanent, if we want to put it that way. Recognizing that what is impermanent is not separate from what is permanent. We've already seen that they are waves of an ocean. Something is inseparable from nothing. Form is inseparable from formlessness. I mean, these terms that the, you read about in this mystical literature here, you know, that sounds so, oh, woo-wee, and gee, when I'm enlightened someday, I'll understand that. No, you can start to understand that in your own experience by making this kind of inquiry now. That's what I'm trying to convince you people of. You already know. You are already certain. What's tripping you up, you see, is you believe these theories. You say, yeah, but everybody knows that. But this is what you have to question. You want to be a mystic, you have to be so skeptical. You have to be such a radical doubter. You are questioning what every sane person around you just takes for granted. The problem with mystics isn't that they're dogmatists. The problem with is you people are dogmatists. There's some level by which you won't go any farther than that. 
well, a time-space continuum and all that. We know that's proved by science. So let's not go there. Let's see if we can make mysticism fit into that. No, I'm saying in your experience, what is the truth that cannot be denied? Dr. Wolf meant that literally. That what's good enough. You know, in show business, we used to have a saying, good enough for rock and roll. That was musicians are playing rock and roll. They wouldn't spend all that much time tuning their instruments, you know, like you would at a symphony. Ah, you got a rock and roll gig. And so, yeah, it's good enough for rock and roll. And then that became a, you know, when we were mixing TV movies, you don't spend the time a regular feature. Say, ah, it's good enough for rock and roll. Well, we did that with our ideas too. That's good enough for rock and roll. Sure, it's good enough for, you know, getting your car fixed. It's good enough for some medical things. Well, that's iffy. That shifts all the time, impermanent. But, you know, a lot of our ideas, our theories are good enough for rock and roll a lot of the time, but we're not interested in that if you're on a mystical path. We want that certainty. You know, Simone Weil, a great Christian mystic of last century, said, belief isn't worthy of God. Only certainty will do. Yes? Who wants the certainty? Who wants the certainty? Oh, if you don't want the certainty, then you wouldn't be on a mystical path. That's not my question. Oh. It's the same question I asked before, and maybe you answered oh, it. Oh, no. Yeah, no, right. That's exactly right. You ask that question when you get to this point. Who wants the certainty? Who is it that is observing? I mean, when we start looking at the who am I, you know, we, we go through all our phenomena we normally think we are. Our body, we see sensations, motions, thoughts are going, you know. And then we start asking, well, who's observing all this? Who wants the certainty? Who wants to know? Who wants to be enlightened? Yes, all those questions come up. They're all part of the inquiry. But in a mystical path, the inquiry is always about turning inward and going deeper rather than saying, oh, I've got an idea about who might want to know, and then going outward and letting thought take us outward. Do you see the difference I'm talking about? So anyway, this is how a little teaching like truth is that which cannot be denied can have a profound import if we will really take it seriously and if we will really follow it. It leads us on this path of inquiry. And the interesting thing is it leads us from what we are already certain of. If we just come to that level, make sure it's a certainty that cannot be denied and you're on firm footing. And you can get there quite quickly. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. And then just keep pushing, keep pushing. If it's hard for you to get there that quickly, uh, you know, then you have to, you know, read through Plato's Parmenides and Nargajuna and, and you'll have to deconstruct philosophy and uh, all your ideas and read about science and quantum mechanics and paradigm revolutions and, you know, so forth and so on. But you can save yourself a few years. <laughs> yes. Excuse me. This yes. deconstruction sounds almost like a retreat from a search for validation. Almost like you get to a point where it doesn't matter. You don't challenge, you don't need to know. Uh, it's only the constructs that we make for practical reasons. We don't have to question if they're valid or not, or by what position or space or relative to what. Well. First of all, it's not you don't care. I mean, I, in my experience, no one ever does this inquiry unless they care passionately because it takes a lot of work, you know? I mean, it takes effort. This afternoon, I'll guarantee you, by 5 o'clock tonight, most of you have forgotten about this. You won't be watching consciousness awareness and you won't be watching how everything's arising and passing away. 
You'll be involved in making dinner, and maybe it'll occur to you, say, gee, uh, maybe I should stop for a moment. What am I absolutely certain about this experience right now? Well, there's awareness, and then there, oh, look, there are all these phenomena passing away. That's fine, but, you know, only somebody who's really interested will actually do this. I know we don't care about clutching where we were coming from, where we're coming from. That's right. Wherever you land, you want to turn right around and look at that and see, can I really be certain about everything about that? And you'll usually find some hidden little assumption there, like the assumption that you are conscious, that then you can zero in on that and say, well, I can't even be certain about that. So you're deconstructing, deconstructing, deconstructing. In a place where you have let go, and you picked a very good word, where if you have let go of all ideas, concepts, theories about the nature of who you truly are. When you truly do not know, and do not know, I must say, means not that you know that you do not know, but that you do not know. It's not necessarily a pleasant place to be. People deceive us. Well, I don't know anything. That, they're very proud of that. You know, That's a nice place to be. I mean, you don't know. And that's the way mystics describe it. This path leads to bewilderment. It leads to unknowing. In that space, that is where it becomes possible, and there are no guarantees, possible for a realization to dawn that you are this ocean wave that you, I know right now, you cannot possibly doubt that that is all there is, and that is who you are. You're not some observer observing it. You're not some one set of phenomena or collection of phenomena within it that's rising and passing away. Although you are not, not that phenomena either. It's not like you're different from it. This is it, folks. This is awareness and its form. See, right now and now. And this is you. And see, that's why you and me, we're not different. Yes, go ahead, Bill. So are you saying we're all connected? I'm saying more than we're all connected. <laughs> connected is a word that assumes some form of separation. So it's good to start with you're all connected. The Buddhists start with the teaching. Yes, we're all connected. We have to realize we're all interdependent, codependent. That's wonderful teaching, but we're beyond words at this point, beyond distinctions. Like if you look at two waves on an ocean, you could say that they're interconnected. And that's not a bad way of describing them. But more profoundly, they're not interconnected. They're just oceans. You see? Now, if that's all there is, and if time and everything else is part of the phenomena of this, but all this is beyond time, that's what alleviates suffering. You don't really die. How could you possibly really die? Really? Actually, you know, it's a funny way we all know this. We have this hope that we'll never die, and there's a truth to that. Unfortunately, we think it's, I hope this body will never die, and you're going to be sadly disappointed. But there's a real truth to this. We hope we could attain absolute happiness. We have this intuition that it's possible. We're certainly not certain of it now. But you know what? We're right. Only we're not going to attain it, uh, you know, by, uh, uh, I don't know, having uh, one of those KO4 plans so that we can retire nicely. That won't hurt. <laughs> but you're going to lose that. You're going to be disappointed. <laughs> What is it? 401k. 401k. <laughs> you can tell I don't have one. But I do have some money in the stock market. I've been keeping an eye on it, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, let me put this way. See, this is where time is useful. I had some money in the stock market. <laughs> 
Anyway, so that's the point. It, it, it is so obvious. It is just what there's absolutely no doubt about right now. That's just what we're trying to get to. Then, then you know the truth that cannot be denied, and then you know the status of, of the truth of various ideas and concepts. And then everything turns around. You see them all as part of the play of this. And it's fascinating. And it becomes very important. Not crucially important, but very important what ideas are right. In a particular context, because they're all relative. So what are we talking about? Yes, it's important to know. Uh, you got a pain in your belly? It's important to know whether you've got the, a burst appendix, and if you don't get to the hospital in a certain amount of time, you're going to die, or you just need a little uh, Maalox, uh, you know what I mean? That's important to know. It's not ultimately important. Your happiness doesn't depend on it, but it's important to know. It's quite fascinating about uh, quantum mechanics. What is the relationship between particles and waves? It's very intriguing. It's like a puzzle. And people get the, you know, it's like being a detective. I love detective movies. You know, Jennifer and I, we're always looking for a really good detective movie. If you know a good one for us, we have high standards now. Really good whodunit. Fascinating. Yes. So, a question about the motivation of pursuing this. Uh, I have a sense that that there's a great joyous sense of freedom from being shackled to these constructs. Just wondering, is this something that we do because it's there, like climbing the mountain, or we do it because we expect to attain something? The only kind of answer that I could give are poetic, metaphorical answers. But actually, they also contain a kind of a naked truth about them. Why do kids like to play hide-and-seek? You know, if you think about it, it's kind of a silly game, see? So there's this one person, and everybody else goes out and hides, right? I I I don't know how old it's about. Seven, eight? Is that about the right age for hide-and-seek? You people have kids. Mm-hmm. And then they all go hide behind bushes or stuff. And then it's usually an adult or an older child, I think it was in our case anyway, would say, count to ten and I'm going to come get you, right? And then they will go around looking around, and you're hiding there, and you're trying to be very <laughs> quiet and still and not get recognized. And they're trying to recognize you. And they come up and say, oh, there's Joel. I see Joel. <laughs> it's a fun game. It's fun for the uh, kids especially. I think mean, if it's an older kid, it's fun for them too. You know, just for the sheer joy of doing it. That's how we do it, right? I mean, you don't get uh, you know money donated to your 401k plan for it, or there's no <laughs> ulterior motive. Somehow kids thought up this game, they love to do it, and it's fun, and it's perennially fun. Well, and there's less suffering. What? And there's less suffering. Oh, there can be suffering. Oh, yes, there can be lots of suffering. Supposing you're a young kid and you can't find anybody. You see young kids, they start to say, oh, I'm all alone, oh, somebody come out. And then the, the kid who's so happy can, can't be found, and then they find everybody else, and they get bored and go off to another game. Well, you've forgotten me. Wait a minute. Oh, you can have a lot, generate a lot of suffering in this game. But why? It's fun to hide and seek and be found. What is our life? From a spiritual point of view, that is all our life is. It's a hiding and a seeking and a finding. I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. So that's the best answer I can give to your question.
Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's hard for me to see that. Hide and seek is very interesting. I remember when my sister was young, maybe she was four or five, when she wanted to hide, she just said, Beautiful! We are not, in fact, hidden. We are not, in fact, hidden. So yes. this is how we hide. <laughs> this is what, for, for, the, for the tape here, he's doing, saying, when his sister used to want to play hide and seek, she'd cover her eyes and her face with her hands and say, I'm hidden now, as though, uh, as though she was truly hidden. And, and that's very good. This is an analogy. If we want to talk in, in terms of God and a seeker, you know, we can't really be hidden from God. That's what we're doing. We're going like this, you know, and we're saying, oh, I'm hidden, I'm hidden. It's only our side that's hidden. Nothing about us is hidden from God. Now it's God as consciousness, and we're using, you see, we're back into the world of words here. We have to use words, otherwise we would have shut up and we could have, you know, well, maybe that's what we should have done and just gone and eat something here. But if we're going to continue with questions and stuff, we have to start using words more loosely. But that's a very nice uh, analogy. One other thing, you had your hand up. You, you touched on certainty. Mm-hmm. I'm certain of, of this one thing. Um, a lot of the, the spiritual teaching is about the uh, non-reality of things and to question everything that we see and see things as being empty. The certainty you refer to, and you're absolutely certain, isn't that only possible with Gnosis? Are you absolutely certain something is appearing now? Well, all the teaching I've been reading is that everything is illusory. Yeah, but this is the point. What is appearing may be illusory because it may be a dream. I mean, once we start thinking about what is appearing... So we're certain that there's something here that may or may not be illusory. Right, exactly. We see what we think about it is irrelevant. Ah, now you're getting it. See, what is my direct naked experience? I don't have to think about it. There's no way you can convince me something isn't appearing. We can talk about whether it's a dream or not. We can talk about whether it has a physical reality and a space-time continuum or whether it is empty of any inherent existence. And we can talk about all those things from now until kingdom come. But I will never convince you that something isn't appearing. What I'm trying to communicate to you is the certainty of Gnosis is just that certainty. It is that that certainty, it's not a certainty that you've arrived at a conclusion. It's not a certainty that you had a certain experience. It is a direct, undeniable certainty about experience. All experience, not just a particular experience. All experience as it arises and passes and so forth. So it's very earthy. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Do you know what I mean? It's below all these thoughts. It's below all these theories. It's extremely direct, but it's extremely earthy and concrete. It's not some airy-fairy, woo-wee, when I'm in samadhi and I'm going to, you know, see all the karmas of all the beings of the world. It has, it has this quality of, you know, you know what brass tastes like? It's a salt. It's that. That's the direction we want to go here fundamental experience. This is why they say, you know, everything tastes of truth. Everything tastes of emptiness. I love that one. And that's not just Buddhist. Meister Eckhart says everything tastes of God. It's got that quality. That's the direction we have to go. Not out into space. Samadhi can be an interesting uh, experience. And I don't want to get uh, tripped over words here because we're never going to get a precise definition because words are always going to fail us. But samadhi is the experience of consciousness without an object. 
That is, nothing is arising and there is consciousness. If you don't believe that there can be just pure consciousness, you can test that. There are techniques, meditation techniques, that will take you into samadhi, and you can see for yourself, or you can practice becoming lucid in dreamless sleep, and you will see for yourself. There is just pure consciousness. So let me leave you with that. Did you have one last? Yeah, just without concept. Consciousness without an object, thats we can understand that. But consciousness without the trace of a concept. Well, that's, in this definition, a concept is an object, in Wolf's mm-hmm. definition. Yes. It's true that uh, Dr. Wolf's book, Consciousness Without an Object, also has a tag on it that says, nor a subject. That's correct. And that was always his full <laughs> statement. That's very important. Yeah. Consciousness without an object and without a subject. And that was his philosophical definition of the ultimate nature of reality. All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, until we see you again, have a wonderful break and peace to you all.